0: Good morning. Today's passage comes from, of course I can't see it, 1 Samuel, a certain chapter, starting in verse 41. (laughs) And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: All right. Thanks, Scott. Morning, Arcadia. It is, uh, hey, some of you remembered my name. It's great to be back. Uh, I was gone for three and a half weeks. Never done that before. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about it before we get into this, uh, as I usually do at this time of year. Uh, I will tell you I'm very disappointed I figured three and a half weeks would be enough for the construction on camelback to finally be completed (laughs) and I was disappointed to see that it was actually expanded by the time I got back and now there's a porta potty out there which means there's no end in sight so I'm really disappointed about that. So most of you know, many of you know that every summer I do this camp up in Iowa, this is my 26th year to do it, Uh, they have 13 uh, different weeks of camp every summer. And four of those weeks are family camps, where the whole family comes. And I have done family camp number three, which is generally the end of July, beginning of August. Uh, Every year for 26 years, Jackie is almost always there with me. We've developed a great community and friends and and deep relationships through all of that. And I look forward to it every year. Uh, This last year, the directors, uh, it's a married couple, Tom and Cammie, and Tom is my wife, Jackie, they're cousins, and so that's kind of the connection. Why are you doing a camp in northeast Iowa? Well, that's the connection. It's a family connection. Uh, they were desperate that first year, 26 years ago, and then after that, they had no choice but to ask me back every year. So, um, Anyway, uh, so I did family camp three, but this is the first year they asked me to come and also do family camp two. Uh, which they had moved to closer to Family Camp 3, so there was only a week in between. And their idea was that in that week in between, I'd drive up to—our uh, our extended family has this tiny little house up in central Wisconsin in a place called Omro, Wisconsin. And if you're not sure where Omro is, this will clear it up. It's about six miles from Winneconnie, Wisconsin. So. Um, <laughs> I actually said that at one of the camps, and a guy walked up to me afterwards and he said, my college roommate was from Winniconnie, so I had no idea where Amro was until you said that, so, <laughs> Wisconsin. Anyway, uh, so I'll go up there, have a study week, and then maybe Jackie would come in towards the end of the week, we'd have a couple of days together up there, come down to Family Camp 3, and so uh, I said, okay, I'll ask the elders and see if I could be away for three and a half weeks, and... Um, with rental car prices and everything, I decided to drive there and back and, and so that's why it was three and a half weeks and, and uh, it did it. And it was a great trip. It was a long trip. I am really glad I did it. I have so many great stories, God stories of things that happened. It was really wonderful, um, but I won't do it again. It was interesting being away that long. I had, in 35 years of marriage, I've never been away from Jackie for. Uh, fifteen days straight, that was how long we were away from each other, and that was rough. and then being away from this community for that long was also really hard. I tuned in every Sunday uh, that I was away on YouTube. I was here last Sunday, just barely having driven in uh, the night before, but uh, just I just really missed it. so it was great, but I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't do it uh, again. Um, family camp three was. Wonderful! It's it's interesting. Family camp 2, I, I knew some of the people, but there was, weren't those deep relationships. And I started to develop some of those relationships, and that was good. And and Cammie has talked. Cammy and Tom have talked about you know bringing me back again for family two, and only flying me in and out this time so that I'm not gone so long. Um, and we'll see how that shakes out. But family three is really special. There's been uh, the camp is actually 50 years old, and so they were celebrating their 50 year anniversary this year. And Tom and Cammie have been the directors for more than half of that time now. And they have taken that camp from when they took it over. It was quite honestly, uh, they were thinking of shutting it down. It was a disaster. It was a mess. Financially, they were in trouble. And now it's one of the premier camps in the upper Midwest. A lot of people know about it. It is uh, sold out every single week during the summer, including that first summer during COVID, they were sold out every single week. And uh, in fact, Family Camp 3 this year was oversold by three families, and they had to scramble to be able to find uh, room. And, and it's just a great time. They have built so many new things there that there were hardly any buildings when they got there, 26 years to run it, but they've built an activity center with a full gym. They've built uh, a, a huge, wonderful dining hall, and then... Just this last year, they built an outdoor pavilion that is uh, that I didn't see the vision for, but when I saw the pavilion, and that's where we have the, the uh, daily chapels in now, with the backdrop, and you saw the video a couple weeks ago from Family Camp 2, how beautiful that was. I, I mean, it's just magnificent. So the camp is doing really, really well. I'll show you a few videos from the camp just to give you an idea for those of you that haven't been around what it's like this little weird coloring, sorry about that, it's my phone. <laughs> That's my son-in-law, he is now the assistant director of, of the camp. They started there in May and so now there's even a deeper family connection. Um, This next video is something that in 26 years has never happened at the camp before. Uh, Apparently, we're in the middle of all kinds of farmland, and apparently, I didn't know this, as much as I've been there and run on the farm roads and everything there, but there's a group of farmers, a very large group of farmers, and and every two or three months on a Sunday morning, they get together and just drive their tractors all over the place. And they pulled into camp one morning on, on my way to breakfast, so. So, it, if you're not familiar with tractors, all you got to do is go to the Upper Midwest and drive around, and you'll run into tractors there. That's a fun, kind of a fun thing. Uh, this last video is really special. Uh, Tom and Cammie, the people that uh, lead the camp, have four children. Uh, their oldest is a nurse in Milwaukee, and she's planning to become go into the mission field with her nursing. Just a bright young lady, wonderful. Uh, her, their first two sons are both in the Air Force. One is starting his senior year at the Air Force Academy. The other one has already been through his flight training and is getting his own fighter jet and is likely gonna be assigned, he's so good at this, he's likely gonna be assigned, we understand, to uh, the, the uh, fight, flight training school for new, uh, for new pilots. So that's really fun. Uh, and then their youngest son, Toby, is uh, 13 years old. All three of their first children, I had in the past baptized them <laughs> Uh, In the 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 the, uh, camp uh, uh, lake, and this year Toby came forward and said he wanted to be baptized. So I've done all four of their children in the camp lake, very very special. And this was at a baptism ceremony Thursday afternoon of the camp where we actually baptized five people that day. So it was really a special time. The the uh, audio on this is a little tough to listen to, but you can at least get the gist of what was going on. leading the set, (laughs) I can retire now, but uh, we're just so excited that So in order to show that video, I had, uh, Toby, uh, I had to have Toby sign a release and give him $20, and then he said I could show that uh, video. So anyway, it's a great time. Uh, and, I, and I spend the first uh, six months after camp looking back at it and remembering it and, and enjoying it. And then I spend the next six months of the year looking forward to camp. That's kind of my thing. Uh, but overall, I am really glad to be back and uh, can't wait to get back into this series on uh, the Kings. Uh, uh, Saul David and Solomon so let me pray and we'll get back into 1st Samuel 17 today our gracious and holy God thank you for uh, your favor your blessing we praise you and we exalt you we thank you for who your son is and what he has done for us and what he continues to do for us now uh, we welcome your Holy Spirit here today Uh, Not only into this space, we know you're here. We welcome you, but we also welcome you inside of us. And God, we thank you for your word and its truth. And I just pray that as we uh, talk about you and talk about your people, talk about the gospel, uh, that the Holy Spirit would carry these words and discern what needs to be planted in our hearts and our minds and what needs to just go by the wayside. So help us to be able to do that this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So some review, uh, because these two chapters in this 22-week series uh, from last week and this week kind of go together, 16 and 17 in 1 Samuel. Uh, In effect, Saul, King Saul, has been deposed, in effect, but he's still king, although God is moving forward now with David. We found that out last week. Now, this creates tension, and I thought... Trey did a great job last week talking about how God could have done this any number of other ways and eliminated all the tension of having a a sitting king uh, knowing that there was already an anointed next king waiting in line and how that would create tension and how Trey taught us last week that God is comfortable in the tension and yet we aren't. It seems to me that Virtually everybody I know is looking is just looking for a way to eliminate all the tension in their life, and and people who even walk into this church I know for the first time may be thinking, if I could just find something in that church that would eliminate all the tension in my life and make my life nothing but cupcakes and muffins, then I found my church. And I got to tell you, that's not God's deal. God's deal is not about eliminating tension. His His deal is that He promises to walk through us, walk through the tension with us. That's His promise. Now, he has all the power to eliminate the tension and change our circumstances, but what he mostly does is to just walk through that tension uh, with us. Now, Saul is deposed because although he started out as humble and modest and desiring to do God's work God's way, things changed. And generally speaking, three things in Saul's methodology and way of thinking emerged that got him into trouble. The first one is that sometimes he just he got to a point where he just simply disregarded God's instructions, assuming that he knew better than God. After all, he's thinking, I'm on the ground. I'm on the front lines of life. I know my situation better than God. God's just hanging out in heaven. How could he possibly know what I know, right? We do the same thing. We're sure that we understand our situation and circumstances better than God, and that leads us to some bad decisions. Uh, Trey, again, mentioned last week about when God turns us over to our own desires, that's actually a really bad thing, but we think it's a good thing. In the end, that usually doesn't work out very well for us. Second of all, there are other times, such as chapter 15 when Tyler Thompson preached Um, chapter 15 with the Amalekites, he did follow God's instructions, sort of, but in Saul's mind what he did was he improved on God's instructions. He decided that God needs a little help to just make it a little bit better. So, yeah, I'm following God, but I have a twist to what God wants to do that's going to make it even better. We also do that, and that did not go well at all for Saul even though they had a great victory. And then finally... The third thing that Saul does is that no matter what he does, whether it's out-and-out disobedience or he inflicts his improvements on God's plan, he is always ready with a rationalization for why he is flouting God. He's always got an explanation. He's always got a reason. He He can rationalize whatever it is he's doing as better than what God would have him do. So rationalizing sin and disobedience that's actually something that human beings have been doing ever since Genesis chapter 3, verse 12. And if you're wondering about that, you can go back and read Genesis chapter 3. So, Samuel is told by God to go to the house of Jesse, where David, who is the eighth son of Jesse, is anointed as the next king. And if you were here last week, you know that chapters 16 and 17, last week and this week, are like a little two-week mini-series in the midst of this larger series about the start of David's life and his narrative in the book of Samuels, the first and second book of Samuel. So uh, Trey talked about how th- there are these rhetorical markers that help us to understand this notion of inclusio, how there's... There's a start that's similar to the end, and everything in between actually relates to each other and goes together and is part of one major story that's being being told. So as we look at these chapters and and verse divisions and paragraphs and all that, it's really easy for us to sort of disassociate chapter 16 from 17, but they actually, the author wanted wanted them to go together as sort of a unit to help us understand um, David a little bit better. And, And when you have Inclusio... Generally speaking, the rhetorical marker and the rhetorical rule for inclusio is that there's going to be a great contrast in the midst of the narrative. And there is with David. In chapter 16, it's a story of how David gets overlooked and overlooked and overlooked, and then finally he is chosen. And then in chapter 17, it's about how David, the one who's overlooked, has this amazing, stunning victory over Goliath, over the very person that nobody thinks anybody can Defeat. So there's this tremendous contrast. Now, I'm sorry, I only have sports analogies for this. And I apologize to those of you that aren't into it. But here here are a couple of examples of that. Um, In 1980, everybody overlooked the United States Olympic hockey team. They overlooked them, overlooked them, overlooked them. And then the next thing you know, in the semifinals, they beat the Russians. And then in the finals, they win the gold medal. That's a, that's a great idea of contrast. And then for some of you, this will be really fun. For others of you, you're going to groan. But you think about Tom Brady, uh, the, the quarterback, and how he was overlooked for much of his younger career. He didn't even start uh, in college. And now he's won, like, I don't know, 67 Super Bowls or something. I don't know. He's the GOAT, from what I understand. I think that stands for greatest of all time. Anyway, so sorry about the sports analogies. Well, today we get to discuss that second half of that inclusio, this stunning victory of David over Goliath. And I can't imagine anyone on the planet that doesn't think they have some idea of what this story is about, even if they've never read it, because David and Goliath is one of the most popular metaphorical sayings in the world. So people who've never even read the story will say, oh, it's a David and Goliath situation. But Goliath was a Philistine, and the Philistines were uh, seemingly the constant enemy of God's people, Israel. And David goes uninvited to fight against Goliath. He sort of worms his way into this. And, and, you know, the Philistines were very persistent. It's, It's amazing to me, no matter how many times they would get defeated by the Israelites because God was with the Israelites, they just kept coming back for more. They didn't even learn from the great uh, ark of God fiasco in 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 6 where they capture the Ark and then they have seven of the worst months of their lives having the Ark of God in their presence. They didn't even learn from that. But now, now their idea is we have an unbeatable weapon. Nobody is going to be able to defeat Goliath. He's, he's amazing. Uh, the author uh, Malcolm Gladwell has a wonderful, albeit theologically incomplete, a wonderful take on David's victory over Goliath Uh, He says that when you're looking to defeat an undefeatable foe, don't look for their weaknesses, but rather attack the opening that their strength exposes because everybody has a strength that will actually uh, give you a little opening into how to defeat them. And he talks about that in the book. So Goliath was big and strong and scary, but he was not nimble. And there's the opening that David took advantage of. So David's expertise at placing a lightning-fast moving stone in just the right place was actually a pretty easy victory for David over Goliath. But, of course, God was involved, as we see throughout the entire text of this story. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to work through the account, uh, the whole chapter, Summarizing some, reading others, and then we're going to close with three points of application for us. So the first 11 verses of 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sukkah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sukkah and Ezekiah in Ephens-Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, And drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp the Philistine, a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in span. Six cubits height, he was nine feet tall. This dude was really big, and then he had the accompanying portions uh, with that nine feet tall going, uh, going wide. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. So he's pretty strong to carry all that around. And he had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. And the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. Why does he need a shield bearer? I don't understand that. I mean, the guy shouldn't need one. But anyway, he's got a shield bearer in front of him. And he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. How many times have people said, this is how we should settle all wars. Every country, just get their best person and put up your best person and have them fight to the death. And whoever wins, they win. that country wins the war. How many times have you ever talked about that as an idea? So right now, it would be Biden against Putin. I just want to point that out, okay? <laughs> so, and, and here's the funniest thing about that. would any country ever abide by that agreement if they lost? Absolutely not. If they lost, they'd find a technicality or something, and they go, okay, we're still going to fight. So it doesn't work. So Goliath, he may be big, but he's not that bright. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So in verses 12 through 21... David gets introduced into this narrative. And he's the eighth of eight sons of Jesse. So he's the annoying little brother who is always an afterthought, who is always overlooked. There's no way this guy is going to be able to help. And in verse 13, we see that the three oldest brothers are at the front, and the three oldest brothers of Jesse are named, and they're at the front of Saul's Army ostensibly fighting the Philistines. I want you to notice again here's a rhetorical marker for chapter 16 and 17. When Samuel goes to find and anoint the new king, the son of Jesse, the first three sons of Jesse are named, and then after that, it's just the rest of the sons. So there's a parallel in 16 and 17 about the first three sons being involved in the narrative by name. So you can see, again, this rhetorical marker marrying these two chapters. But David is anointed by God for this. The other three brothers weren't. And here's how they get David, God gets David to the front. His father, Jesse, who is thoroughly oblivious to the theological and spiritual story that is about to unfold... He sends David to the front to inquire how his three other sons are doing in the battle and to take them supplies so that they might be refreshed in the battle. And so David arrives and he drops off the supplies, but rather than just simply turning around and going back home, here's what happens, verses 22 through 29a. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words before as before, and David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were very much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who, who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter and make his father's household free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, David's older brother, oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Why aren't you tending the sheep, you moron? That's essentially what he's saying to him. So, And it's funny. So Eliab's there, and I assume his two brothers are there. and, And I want you to think about how Eliab treats his little brother, who's just trying to help. Just just maybe doing what God would call him to do. He's thinking about, why would you let this, this, this pagan, this person that we've been shown favor by God, why would you just bow down to this? big? I know he's big and scary, but why would you do that? We have the living God on our side. And, and I think it's interesting because I see a parallel here to how Jesus' family treated him when he started his public ministry, when he started preaching. His mother and his brothers and his family were like trying to pull him out, Say, what are you doing? What are you doing? you got to get out of here. What are you doing? They were embarrassed of him. They thought he had gone crazy. It's the same kind of thing that's going on. And remember again what Trey taught last week. David is a foreshadow of Jesus. And we also have to remember that Jesus came from David's line as well. Jesus is referred to in the New Testament as the son of David. In other words, David's one of his human ancestors. But David is different, just like Jesus is different. David has an understanding of God that is not present with all these other guys under Saul's leadership. David has faith, and also like Jesus, he's serious about doing God's work God's way. At least he is right now. I know that in later chapters we'll find that some of that falls by the wayside. So Saul hears of this through the grapevine and he decides to send for David. Saul is worried and afraid and he's willing to listen to anything and try anything in the midst of this dire losing predicament. So verses 32 through 33. And David said to Saul, let no man's man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. So then in verses 34 through 36, Saul responds, or David responds to Saul, and essentially here's what he say, says. I'm paraphrasing, but this is what he says. He says, Saul, listen, I know I'm just a shepherd, but what you don't understand is that as a shepherd, I am skilled and experienced at beating lions and bears who want to take my sheep. And certainly by God's power and God's provision, I can defeat this loser Philistine that you are so afraid of. Saul, with all due respect, where is your faith? And then in verse 37, and David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. And then 38 through 40. So Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped a sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, but he had not tested this armor. Then David said to Saul, I, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. Also, I imagine they don't exactly fit. Saul was much bigger than, uh, than David. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. So David rejects the conventional worldly wisdom of how to fight and he embraces two things. He embraces God's provision and what he knows best. That's not a bad idea for any of us. He embraces God's provision and what he knows best, how God has specifically gifted him for what he's calling him to do. So then we read the passage that Scott read for us, 41 through 47. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and all that this assembly may know that that the Lord saves, not with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand." Uh, you know, guys in the NBA think they're the only ones who have ever talked trash in, in, in history. There's some serious trash talking going on between Goliath and David here. And, and it's interesting because Goliath knows something about uh, David's law. Uh, because of that God remark, he's specifically saying, you're treating me like a dog. He, he's saying to a Jew, you're treating me like something that is disdained and unclean according to your law. And and so that's his way of trying. He say, I'm not like that. You, I am not a dog, I'm not somebody you can treat with disdain. I am somebody that's going to fix your wagon, little boy. That's essentially what he's saying. David doesn't back down. He says, he says, Listen, Goliath, you come to me in battle with all this worldly wisdom and with all these worldly tools, which, by the way, he didn't say this, but that would be foolishness in the eyes of God. Read 1 Corinthians. Uh, chapters 1 through 3, and you'll see that there. David says, But rather I come to you in the name of the Lord, and this battle is the Lord's, it's not mine. And so then verses 48 through 50. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine, and David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it, and it struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead. Yuck and he fell on his face to the ground. So this is the fastest and greatest underdog victory in the history of the world. This was God's victory. And summarizing the last four verses, David did what he said. He cut off Goliath's head, uh, presented it as a trophy, and the Philistines were now very afraid, and they actually ran away. So Israel wins. It's God's victory. So here are three points of application as we wrap this up. Um, First of all, I found that we, we seem to live now, I don't know if you've noticed, we live now in a culture of yard signs. Has anybody noticed that? Seems like everybody's putting a sign in their yard. And I'm not talking about a for sale sign, Okay, I'm talking about signs that are mostly virtue signaling. You know, love is love, science is real, kindness is everything, Trump 2024. In central Wisconsin, that's the most popular, I will tell you. Uh, yard sign Okay. Uh, here's a sign I never saw this sign before never saw it before and it was in central Wisconsin and I saw it when I was in the middle of writing this very sermon during my week uh, between the camps I got forced, I researched read and wrote four sermons and I'm out running and I saw that and I said hmm that might work for chapter 17 faith over fear this is a picture of David especially as opposed to Saul in this situation. And and think about this. How many times in the New Testament does Jesus start his teaching with the phrase, do not be afraid? Well, about 500 times. It's the most common thing that Jesus ever says in the New Testament. And his point is that Jesus, God, is the antidote to fear. Jesus saves. Here's the second thing. It is amazing how, when you and I get overwhelmed with our circumstances, just like Saul, it's so easy to forget God and rely on us and our own solutions. We get myopic. Now Saul, who early in his reign was all about God, now he doesn't even consider God. It's not even, not even in his periphery, it's not on his, God's not on his mind. David's reliance on God and and David's offense on behalf of God to this uncircumcised Philistine were now novel ideas to Saul and his leaders. This is strange to Saul and his leaders. Saul and his army were not only living in fear of the reality of a potential physical crushing by the Philistines, but also in fear of saying anything that might offend the Philistine. Is anyone here tired of living in silence as a believer in Jesus because someone might have their feelings hurt? Um, Again, sorry, sports analogy. Uh, While I'm writing research, reading, writing sermons, um, occasionally I'll take a little break. And I'll go to this thing on the internet. I don't know if you've ever seen it before. It's called YouTube. And um, um, I like to watch hockey videos. And there was, I found this little video, again, while I was up in Wisconsin. Um, it was just this video of, of two players from different teams kind of jawing at each other, you know, talking trash. It is like what they do. And, and one team was up 5 to 1 in this game. And so the player from the team that was up 5 to 1, uh, at one point during their little jawing session, just pointed up at the scoreboard. You know, look at the score. We're beating you five to one. And the referee comes over and gives that player an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty. And I was amazed because the commentators, the guys that were calling the game, they absolutely went off and started saying things like, This is just too much. The world we live in is way too sensitive that you can't even point at a scoreboard. You're going to get a penalty for that. You know, God forbid that somebody celebrate a touchdown in the NFL, right? It's amazing how sensitive we are. We just can't say anything anymore. David was willing to say whatever needed to be said. And then he backed up the words, not with himself, but with God, God's provision and how God had gifted and wired him to be able to do his work. And then finally, the last thing, this is a really famous story. And for church people, I know it's very familiar. But even for unchurched people, I know that they, they have a pretty good idea of what this story is and what its moral is. So here's, I want to, I'm just guessing. You don't have to answer, but I'm just guessing. And I, and I tested this out on a few people, and they said, yep, that's true. Um, Many of you have likely heard this story taught with this application at the end of the story. So, what are the Goliaths in your life? You know, David shows us that with God, you can slay your Goliaths. So now, let's figure out what your Goliaths are. Okay, so let's list our potential Goliaths. Uh, For some of you, it's your boss. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's a cell phone you didn't turn off. Maybe it's school, especially that one class you can't seem to connect with, but you need it for your major. Maybe it's a broken relationship, or your porn addiction, or your anger. Maybe it's the sons. Maybe it is your phone. And and let me say this about your phone. I just read this in a book I finished. This is a great quote. In our our tumble-buried world, We live in constant distraction from the distractions that distract us from the distractions we most want to be distracted by. Isn't that true? It's just true. See, there's a Goliath in your pocket or your purse or right in front of you right now distracting you from this sermon. Anyway, maybe your Goliath is overeating or too little sleep or your in-laws or Phoenix traffic. I don't know. Whatever your Goliath is, trust me, like David, you can slay it. I don't really see it that way. Those aren't our real Goliaths. At one point in this series, we talked about how Israel had all these external enemies, the Philistines, the Amalekites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, all of these different external enemies. But their worst enemy, their truest enemy, their number one enemy, was themselves and their own way of thinking, and turning from God. So our real Goliath is us. It's you, and it's me. That's the Goliath we should be seeking to slay by the power of the resurrection and the Holy Spirit filling us. This is why David was effective in this battle. There's a story that goes around. I've tried to document it properly, and most people say... uh, there, there is no way to absolutely document it, but it, there's pretty good evidence that it's true if you've ever heard of the early 20th century uh, British theologian G k. Chesterton, uh, the London news newspaper, the Daily newspaper wrote a, an editorial article one day in somewhere in the 1920s lamenting how Things in the world were so bad. Things in the world were so dark. I know you're thinking, the 20s? Really? I thought it was much better. That. Things were dark. Things were bad. And, and they asked the question, what do our readers think? Why is the work world such a problem? What's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton wrote in a letter, and it said, Dear Sirs, I am G.K. Chesterton. And he's saying, listen, it's, it's the sin nature that all of us have had imputed to us through what happened in Genesis chapter 3, which we referenced earlier, that we have no way of getting out of, except for Jesus on the cross and through his resurrection. Otherwise, we have no way of changing that that sin nature, no way of getting out of it, and that's why things are so tough. So our our biggest Goliath, our primary Goliath, is actually us. We may think it's the results of our behavior, the results of our decision. We may think it's our circumstances or our boss or our fault fo- or whatever it is. It really starts with us. And when we overlook us and don't start there, that's when we run into problems. David was effective in this battle because he calmly set aside his distractions and his excuses and he leaned into God. He wasn't anxious. He wasn't claiming victimhood. He wasn't afraid. He simply leaned into who God created him to be and then trusted God for his provision. David first slayed everything about himself that would get in the way. That was the Goliath that David first slayed. You think about the Gospels. You Think about how often Jesus says to people, follow me or come to me, repent. You know why he says that? Yes, it is to be saved and healed. Yes, and we proclaim the gospel, and we want you to know Jesus so that you can spend eternity in heaven, in the new Jerusalem, with Jesus. Very important. So he does say it for that reason. And by the way, a little side note. In in the ancient Greek, the same word that is translated as saved and healed, it's the same Greek word. Now, think about that this afternoon when you're having lunch. Just consider that. At any rate, he says those things because he wants us saved and healed. But also, part of being saved is that when we walk with Jesus in this life, in this world, when we follow Jesus, when we lean into Jesus, we are more and more who we were created to be in the first place by being with him, which is what happened with David. And it is only Jesus who can give that to us because he's God, he's the Savior the Deliverer, the Redeemer. You think about Matthew chapter 11, those famous verses. I'm paraphrasing them, but this is what he's talking about. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary, all of you who are burdened, distracted, anxious, fearful, overwhelmed, all of you who are sick of religion and morality and virtue signaling, and I will give you rest. Why will Jesus give us rest? It's because his way is powered by him and the indwelling Holy Spirit, and it's not powered by our burdens and our to-do lists and our willpower. I have a question for everybody, rhetorical question. I want you to think about this. How many of you long for your soul to catch up to your body, your busyness, and your burdens? How many of you long for that? We all struggle with this, I think, and yet we keep doing the same things, expecting different results We need to make way more time for Jesus. And by the way, this is not a call to complacency, but rather it's a call to surrender to the one who created us and created the world that we live in. So who better to surrender to? David went to the front with an ethos of surrender. David attacked Goliath with an ethos of surrender. And David understood that Goliath wasn't really the problem. The problem was that God's people were not organizing their lives, their circumstances, and their challenges around the Lord. Can we start moving ourselves out of the way and place Jesus in our lives where he rightfully belongs? That's our challenge today. Let's pray together. Our gracious and holy God, that is our call, that is our challenge, and that is my prayer for everybody today, myself included, that we would figure out how to make more time for you that there's never a regret about the time we spend with you, time we spend in your word and the time we spend with your people but I know there are regrets for the time that we spend in our favorite distractions so help us to by your wisdom seek you first come to you first recognize that you have open arms for us that we can come boldly and confidently to your throne of grace and be loved and healed and nurtured by you that's our prayer today God and we pray it in Jesus name amen so we're going to have our time of response and reflection if our communion servers would please come forward One of the things we really don't do at camp is take communion. We, we all get to eat together in the dining hall, but it's different. Um, there isn't this purposeful focus on what Jesus has done for us, so I miss that. And so we get to do that now. We get to come to the Lord's table where uh, Jesus, on the night that he's betrayed, he's, he's with his disciples, and he, and he takes the bread and he breaks it, and he says, this is my body, and it's given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And once they had supped on the bread, he picked up the cup of wine. Uh, In the Passover meal, that would have been the cup of thanksgiving. And he said, this is the new covenant of my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink and do this in remembrance of me. And Paul reminds us that as often as we come and eat this bread and drink of the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. It's a... It's a time of confession that we need Jesus and a time of celebration that we do have Jesus. And so if you're a follower of Christ, if you can confess that Jesus is your Savior and you celebrate him as your Savior, this is a time when you come into the center aisle, you move forward, and then you split off and you take uh, the elements from any of our servers here. We also usually have people standing in the wings, elders, deacons, staff members, who if you have prayers or questions or just things that you need to sort out. Uh, We'd be glad to talk with you, pray with you, whatever that might be. Uh, We'd be glad to do that as the service is winding up during communion, during the last song, whenever it is. So let's do all that right now.
2: Then through the.
1: Amen. Let me read this as our sending benediction in prayer. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Praise God for that. Go in peace. Go live all of life, all for Jesus. We'll see you next